I'm, I'm, I'm getting there. I'm getting there, you bastards. Uh, I have to do this, the intro. I have to do the startup for the recording. Hello, and thank you all for coming to the Deleuze and Guattari Quarantine Collective ongoing reading of Anti-Oedipus. We are continuing with Section 5 of Chapter 4, the final section of the book, as we learn the second task, positive task of schizoanalysis. Everyone may have a week off to sort of catch up and prepare for us ending this, so... We'll see what we can get through in the next two days. For now, I'm going to dive into Anti-Oedipus. <clears throat> yeah, I'm happy to give you permission. <sighs> Lawrence shows in a profound way that sexuality, including chastity, is a matter of flows, an infinity of different and even contrary flows. Everything depends on the way in which these flows... One sec, I'm turning down my fan... Everything depends on the way in which these flows, whatever their object, source, and aim, are coded and broken according to uniform figures, or, on the contrary, taken up in chains of decoding that resect them according to mobile and non-figurative points, the flow's schizes. Lawrence attacks the poverty of the immutable identical images, the figurative roles that are so many tourniquets cutting off the flows of sexuality. Fiancé, mistress, wife, mother, one could just as easily add homosexuals, heterosexuals, etc. All these roles are distributed by the Oedipal Triangle, Father, Mother, Me, a representative ego thought to be, in thought to be defined in terms of the father-mother representations by fixation, regression, assumption, sublimation, and all of that according to what rule? The law of the great phallus that no one possesses, the despotic signifier, prompting the most miserable struggle, a common absence for all the reciprocal exclusions where the flows dry up, drained by bad conscience and resentment. Quote, sticking a woman on a pedestal, or the reverse, sticking her beneath notice, or making a model housewife of her, or a model mother, or a model helpmeet, all mere devices for avoiding any contact with her. A woman is not a model anything, She's not even a distinct and definite personality. A woman is a strange, soft vibration on the air, going forth unknown and unconscious, and seeking a vibration of response. Or else she is a discordant, jarring, painful vibration, going forth and hurting everyone within range, and a man is the same. End quote. Let's not be too quick to make light of the pantheism of flows present in such texts as this. It is not easy to de-Oedipalize even nature, even landscapes, to the extent that Lawrence could. The fundamental difference between psychoanalysis and schizoanalysis is the following. Schizoanalysis attains a non-figurative and non-symbolic unconscious, a pure abstract figural dimension, abstract in the sense of abstract painting, flows schizes or real desire, apprehended below the minimum conditions of identity. Interesting start today because we're going into a full criticism of representation and uh, structures and how we are perceiving the world and locking people into roles and identities and it's a really really great quote for lawrence let's be very fair it's pretty awesome i love the final turn because i was reading it thinking where is he going to go with this but <clears throat> saying and the man and for the man the same it's not just like a you know it doesn't seem to be like a throwaway line he's kind of like He's pointing out that all, you know, it's all, they're all vibrations all the way down. I really appreciated that. But that's, that's, what's interesting. You know, uh, the, uh, 
the phallus that is uh wait i'm just gonna say something stupid because i read the french at the same time but the phallus that is never uh possessed by anyone um it's it's interesting because it it breaks from you know the contemporary um political understanding of you know uh identity politics and one side they they put like the a certain type of man that actually really exists but like there's a confusion between you know this despotic signifier and the people that it's representing but in Deleuze you're not we're not making this error of conf conflating a whole population with um those signifiers yeah i think you're right about that and they get into like the, the use of like regression and uh, sublimation kind of as techniques of maintaining those kind of um those representations but also the way that that works um in terms of a right so like by by this distribution right there's a way in which like a bionivicalization happens right like a double bind more directly and so instead of having becomings of woman and man or um becomings of sexuality or gender you get um you get all that quashed and sort of into a double bind right yeah and it's you know it's not something that they say into this book so i won't go at length about it but it's the whole principle of the n minus one in the sense that the assemblage is the n minus one but there's uh, the 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 molar aggregate is a form of assemblage also you know and you it it needs to be addressed into um what it does instead of how it can be represented and you know this is this is a great example of something that came like years before and they were already like on that kind of uh thinking well and it's, and it's an interesting uh the the early section here where it talks about uh, many flows of sexuality, the tourniquets, cutting it off, fiancé, mistress, wife, mother. All of these roles are distributed by Oedipal Triangle, father, mother, me. Uh, it almost feels as though they're, uh, and what they've been saying uh, in the last few sections, and not to jump forward a little bit here, but it's almost uh, as though we're not necessarily discussing coming up with something that is uh, non-heteronormative, but instead discussing things that are non-Oedipal normative, like Oedipal normal normalization is the thing that we're actually trying to transgress. Mm -hmm. And it's it's the whole thing about structuralism in those years also, because everything was becoming a classification or a taxonomy. And it's to say that reality cannot be reduced to those uh taxonomies or the, the way we try to organize uh cognitively uh, reality reality always escapes that so like there's a broader argument to this as well yeah and that's why i mentioned like the sublimation and that there too right like there's there's techniques that go to try and um to actualize this in a certain manner too right that we've talked about this before right where if oedipus can become a kind of investment right there's a way in which it can also be actualized in that manner all right i think uh i will move on to the next paragraph unless anyone has any last Quick things. Uh, one thing I did want to quickly jump on is the use of uh, their the phrase abstract in the sense of abstract painting. Uh, really a beautiful little note there rather than talking about things being sort of abstract in other ways, uh, giving it a bit more of a direct correlation, not transcendent. Thank you for phrasing it that way, Alyosha. All right, uh, next paragraph. What does psychoanalysis do? 
And first of all, what does Freud do if not maintain sexuality under the morbid yoke of the little secret while finding medical means for rendering it public, for making it into an open, included disjunctions, local connections, nomadic connections? In short, you in short uh, again, you uh, jump. Well, where, wait, my text. No, I jumped to the top of the page. That's my fault. I'm an idiot. Let me start that over. Open secret, the analytic Oedipus. I am going to cut this shit. I make a note of it. One moment. That is at 2037. Cut. 20 minutes. Flat. Excellent. All right. I'm going to read the next paragraph now. <clears throat> what does psychoanalysis do? And first of all, what does Freud do? If not maintain sexuality under the morbid yoke of the little secret, while finding medical means for rendering it public, for making it into an open secret, the analytic Oedipus, we are told... Quote, see here, it's quite normal, everybody's like that, end quote. But one continues to embrace the same humiliating and degrading conception of sexuality, the same figurative conception as the censors. It is certain that psychoanalysis has not made its pictorial revolution. There is a hypothesis dear to Freud. The libido does not invest the social field as such, except on condition that it be desexualized and sublimated. If he holds so closely to this hypothesis, it is because he wants above all to keep sexuality in the limited framework of Narcissus and Oedipus, the ego and the family. Consequently, every sexual libidinal investment having a social dimension seems to him to testify to a pathogenic state, a fixation in narcissism, or a regression to Oedipus and two pre-Oedipal stages, by means of which homosexuality will be explained as a reinforced drive and paranoia as a means of defense. We have seen, on the contrary, that what the libido invested, through its loves and sexuality, was the social field itself and its economic, political, historical, racial, and cultural determinations. In delirium, the libido is continually recreating history, continents, kingdoms, races, and cultures. Not that it is advisable to put historical representations in the place of the familial representations of the Freudian unconscious, or even the archetypes of a collective unconscious. It is merely a question of ascertaining that our choices in matters of love are at the crossroad of vibrations, which is to say they express connections, disjunctions, and conjunctions of flows that cross through a society, entering and leaving it, linking it up with other societies, ancient or contemporary, remote or vanished, dead or yet to be born, Africa's or Orient's, always following the underground thread of the libido. Not geohistorical figures or statues, although our apprenticeship is more readily accomplished with these figures, with books, histories, and reproductions, than with our mommy. But flows and codes of socius that do not portray anything, that merely designate zones of libidinal intensity on the body without organs, and that are emitted, captured, intercepted by the being that we are determined to love, like a point sign, the singular points in the entire network of the intensive body that responds to history, that vibrates with it. Never was Freud more adventurous than in Gradiva. In short, our libidinal investments of the social field, reactionary or revolutionary, are so well hidden, so unconscious, so well masked by the pre-conscious investments that they appear only in our sexual choices of lovers. 
A love is not reactionary or revolutionary, but it is the index of a re- the reactionary or revolutionary character of the social investments of the libido. The desiring sexual relationships of man and woman, or of man and man, or woman and woman, are the index of social relationships between people. Love and sexuality are the exponents, or the indicators, this time unconscious, of the libidinal investments of the social held. Every loved or desired being serves as a collective agent of enunciation, and it is certainly not, as Freud believed, the libido that must be desexualized and sublimated in order to invest society in its flows. On the contrary, it is love, desire, and their flows that manifest the directly social character of the non-sublimated libido and its sexual investments. Uh, <clears throat> does uh, anybody uh, have has anybody read Gradiva? I'm going to look at Ken. Ken would be the best bet here as possibly having read it, but I'm going to start googling while you you guys fight. <laughs> I I have read uh, uh, Gradiva. Have you read it, Ken? Read what? I'm sorry. For us, uh, Gradiva. Um, it's it's uh, a section um, for. for a section from a book um, titled uh, Gradiva, which uh, Freud was in, of uh, Jung was engaged with um, uh, for some time, and uh, Jung uh, advised it uh, to Freud, and uh, Freud uh, took it and analyzed it um, as a uh, love letter to Jung, basically, or to underline uh, their um, their good uh, relationships. That's really interesting. Now I haven't actually. I'd like to hear more about it, then. Yeah, it's uh, basically um, so. It, it, it's it's a bit of a poetic book, um, kind of classic in a sense. And um, Freud analyzes the dreams or the who, who the fictional characters have. Uh, so he doesn't analyze um, real people. He analyzes the dreams of fictional char- uh, characters, and. Um, you really get the sense of um, indeed uh, the freedom that um, Deleuze says he he's never seen anywhere else. I I, I haven't uh, I I couldn't read with, but I I've listened with because I have the Bloomsbury edition and um, I'm a bit lost uh, where we at at the moment. But if anybody, by the way, has uh, the Bloomsbury edition and uh, could uh, maybe give me a page number, that would be great. But to continue on Gradiva, um, he analyzes fictional characters and comes um, to really short and um, bursting um, conclusions uh, about those dreams and how they relate to the unconscious. So he's analyzing a fictional unconscious in Gradiva, which is, of course, um, exactly the point uh, which Deleuze is trying to make that maybe uh, maybe I'm 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 getting a bit ahead of myself, but maybe it's um, exactly what we need to do, or uh, what we are already doing—that every conscious of unconsciousness is uh, fictional. Joe, how does that how does that distinguish from uh, Oedipus in that sense? I mean, obviously, a whole structure was built out of Oedipus, but I mean, just in the principle of you know, use how, how is do you do you ha- know how he avoids turning Gradiva? into that kind of like repressive structure or uh, semiotic like apparatus that the DNG are critiquing? Mm, yeah, um, that's a good question. Um, 
let's see. Yeah, he 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 does it. He gets pretty Udipol with with it, but he he can't uh, for some reason really uh, close that uh, the, the the viciousness of that of that circle because of the gap that the the uh, the fiction leaves. You know, to Freud. Um, uh, uh Udipal relationships are as real as um honey and mustard for example and um of maybe it, it's his bread and butter i don't know but um uh, the, the 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 fictional uh, characters always leave a gap so freud starts guessing um what might have been uh, the the Udipal, uh, context for um uh, the 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 um the, the literature uh, effect. So he starts uh, writing into uh, the book uh, himself. You know, it's it's like he he cannot um, uh, help himself um, get engaged as a writer. You know, that that's so funny because Freud uh, hasn't really written anything um, that's um, um, let's say uh, um, uh, just poetic or literature maybe he did some po po poetic stuff but um, he, he didn't really he was not a, a, an author in the sense he, that he written uh, romantic books or um, that kind of thing he, he admired of course Dostoevsky um, but he, he here he gets uh, indeed uh, as creative as can be and uh, more or less writes um, a fictional um, Udipalization, which is of course not as real as um, the Udipalization, which um, again the Luis Guattari critique uh, or, or try to critique uh, as much as possible. Um, the, the, does that answer the question, or uh, am I a bit off? No, it's helpful. I'm just I'm just gonna take time to process. I think for myself, <clears throat> this section more so than most because it delves very deeply into like Freud and stuff. I'm kind of out of my element, but I was curious about what Ken was saying as well. Ken said in the chat, this thing about it feels like uh, they're critiquing Freud's civilization and discontents with Nietzsche's human all too human. I don't know if you wanted to take a stab at that, Ken, but it just, it might help as a heuristic. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, as I read it, uh, it so in human all too human, um Nietzsche talks about the artist in various ways. So he talks about the artist's sense of truth and then the artist's ambition and then uh like kind of how uh in the artist is something untranslatable which is uh you know neither the best nor the worst of their material but they try to be in some way, shape, or form, sort of untranslatable. That reminds me of something that D and G talk about um, in being. Uh, I can't remember how they post it, but it's like not capturable or something. Um, and then he also Nietzsche also talks about ennoblement through degeneration, which is like, um, which is, uh, which is which is like uh, Freud's concept of regression but it's not uh it's not then captured and odipalized um it's uh so ennoblement through degeneration for uh nietzsche is like um whenever you find holes in the mores uh or like yeah in social norms um 
uh, and in those holes, uh, in the weaknesses of them, that is seen as a weakness reflected in the artist, are uh, its transforming factors or whatever. Um, so uh, Nietzsche says those who degenerate are of the highest importance wherever progress is to take place. Every great progress must be preceded by a partial weakening. The strongest natures hold fast to the type. The weaker ones help to develop it further. Um, and so, and I only make that association because, like, regression to an infi- infantile state is like an epithet. And it's, like, made to paint the person as sort of having a weakness of some sort. But in that regression is can I have a quick interjection? Because yeah. uh, really quick, um, the the weakness. Um, what you are saying is a classical uh, fascist uh, construct. So in that way, it also relates to uh, the Leuze Quattari uh, because they uh, uh, write about the the, the schizophrenic relations of fascism. Um, uh, I, I've seen it come pass by some time, and um, the the weakness to the um, uh, how do you say? Um, uh, like you, you have to get into the mud with um, uh, the, uh, the 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 untermensch with the with the lower lower ranked people, you know, with uh, like the blacks, for instance. You really have to um, uh, work with them. The weakness, like you said, to, to gain uh, access to uh, art, which is uh, a, a classical um, fascist. Um, uh, way of looking at things. I just wanted to note that that it, it, it's very fascist, uh, the, which what Nietzsche said uh, in your quote. I disagree. I think you're maybe making some turns that he's not. Um, but I, I see what you're saying, and that would be sort of like how capitalism incorporates, uh, I don't know, uh, the productive capacities of marginalized peoples to further its own production um but he's talking about like the perceived weakness of a dramatic artist who uh who sort of has breakdowns and breakthroughs and things like that and nietzsche wasn't a fascist no no i'm not saying nietzsche was a fascist but i'm just saying that that line is a classical fascist interpretation of um, the artist and uh, by the way, mm-hmm. if if this if this was um, uh, let's say uh, put to the end, uh, then of course Hitler would have been uh, an Untermensch, uh, which he actually was. Uh, but I think I, I've read that somewhere. But um, that of course uh, Hitler would be um, just as bad as as the um, yeah, let, let's say the, the the people the fascists generally don't uh, like. Um, and I'm not, not saying Nietzsche is a fascist. I'm just saying this um, reasoning is um, classically fascist because Gobineau, yeah, I don't know if you know uh, Gobineau. Have you, have you, does anybody mm-hmm. know? All right. Um, Gobineau is the biggest um, racist um, philosopher of uh, the 1900s and pro- probably of all time because um we corrected kind of um, after the war, uh, the whole um, 
Jew racist uh, thingy uh, what was going on uh, more or less uh, uh, as best as we could I suppose um, but Gobayo's uh, philosophy was um, uh, with um, the 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 start of the uh, the the fascist movement in Europe uh, was getting a, a attention and he wrote uh, a lot of how um, he, wrote, he wrote a social critique based on race and you, you, you see a lot of what he did was actually um, to more or less predict art. So he said like uh, art um, is created of, of um, uh, uh, um, did not, not dissolves, but um, uh, 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 starts, uh, exists somewhere. Uh, um, art uh, exists uh, only after uh, people have uh, interaction with um, the the what, what Gobayo would call the untermensch. So when I say, said untermensch before, I I meant uh, not Nietzsche's interpretation. I, I meant Gobayo's interpretation. So I I I I I, I, that, I want to correct that uh, indeed. I, I I'm not saying Nietzsche was as racist as that, um, but the reasoning was. Um, more or less done before, and I think Nietzsche was aware. I, I think it would be naive to say uh, Nietzsche didn't know that this was a way of re reasoning that was at, at that time, of course, uh, more or less accepted, but um, uh, had links with, um, uh, well, race. Uh, I, I think he definitely was aware of that. Yeah, and that's why I see him using that language because it's sort of like a tongue-in-cheek criticizing of it. Yeah, it was very nice uh, example. So, but but so, sorry, it, it was meant uh, as a short uh, uh, interjection. And um, um, well, <laughs> please continue. Um. Any other thoughts before we move on to the next section? Anyone who hasn't spoken yet? Yeah, I had a question. I typed in chat that uh, Jack, I think, was trying to answer and then didn't. Uh, or did, and I don't understand it. Uh, the, I, I copied a, a part of this that says, uh, in short, our libidinal investments of the social field, reactionary or revolutionary, are so well hidden, so unconscious, so well masked by pre-conscious investments, they appear only in our sexual choices of lovers. It's a very particular phrasing, and uh, my question is, so is it who we fuck determines where we sit revolutionary or or reactionary and jack is saying that it's a not not we're not talking about anthropocentric sort of sexual desire which i because they've been talking about your non-human sex your etc but this feels like they're pointing right at our human sex and i'm kind of confused it's the same kind of uh stuff when zizek says that you know love is a pretty discri discriminatory kind of feeling because when you love something, you discriminate against the rest and you exclude the rest from your passion. So, you know, uh, love would be something, if we take it not from the individual, individual, but something that passes through as a desire or as a passion, it actually is being actualized in you into discrimination. So desire passing through bodies or um, dispositives or, you know, whatever else, assemblages, we'll start including some and excluding others. Yeah, to put it in a more uh, Deleuze and Guattari way, right? The intimate relationships we have with other people reveal the way that we invest the social field in the most like 
I guess, stark or like closest way possible. And I suppose it's also part of this, because again, I missed the last session, but in the previous section, they were talking a lot about the difference between pre-conscious and unconscious investments and the way that the way that those play out on different levels can lead to being both, you know, a subject and a subjugated group in different ways or revolutionary in one way and reactionary in another way. And I suppose you could also see it, whether you took it as literal, you know, human sexual relationships or more than that, that, you know, it's like the old stereotype of like, you know, Nazis in the US who like all date, serially date black women or something like that. It's not that you can determine their politics all from that, but there is a, there is something going on there that is sort of, there's like a, an internal contradiction there that I suppose you could explore. And I'm guessing out loud that it would maybe for DNG would be more interesting to explore that beyond some like edible framework where they're like, they're reaching for some lost thing in their act of doing that. But that reflects, you know, some of the social investments of just like the way that the way that the whole social field is structured, you know? Uh, that makes sense. The phrase that has uh, attached to me, I think, uh, is they have the line in here, uh, every loved or desired being serves as a collective agent of enunciation, which I really like. It makes more sense with that explained to me. Thank you. All right, uh, I'm going to continue on to the next paragraph unless we have objections. Um, I have one thing I wanted to make sure that we uh, brought up because they, I, I don't know, I found it really interesting and like useful uh, when I was reading this paragraph is they uh, bring up narcissists as a sort of alternate pole in Freud's theory to the Oedipal complex. And it was useful to like go through and learn about what primary narcissism is for Freud um, because it is different from the sort of desire that is invested in an Oedipal triangle uh, in Freud because we aren't born with like an ego. Uh, the like construction of that ego comes from like libidinal investments directly into the body and that's primary narcissism and as you get older and start to invest the libido into the objects around you that's when like the super ego and oedipus start to get involved um but as a sort of really really simple sort of uh definition of what primary narcissism is and what they're referencing i think in this paragraph uh, it's worth going over just really quick. <laughs> yeah, um, I'd like to add that the narcissism for for Freud was uh, actually his, he, he hasn't written, of course, a lot about schizophrenia, but uh, Freud wrote, I think the, I, I, I haven't read all of Freud yet. I'm doing um, a whole read of his uh, by, um, biblio bibliography, but um Narcissism uh, was linked to schizophrenia di directly, and um, Freud stated that um, schizophrenia was basically um, people hearing their own uh, conscience uh, under narcissistic uh, pressure. Uh, that's sort of that's interesting. Uh, it sort of, uh, in a funny way, predicts. Uh, I don't know. I guess it's sort of like, what's the word I'm looking for? It's, it's like, ironic. I guess if you want to say that everyone's desire gets caught up in these. Oedipal complexes, but then you're going to introduce a like this like narcissistic character to explain the psychosis that you can't explain with the Oedipal complex. It's 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 almost funny. Yeah, but 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 it it, it is of course tragic also because um, um, the it, it's for, for uh, uh, 
well, not the way it's put, it's put in the book, but the, the way Freud put it, it was more or less tragic. Um, because, um, of course, people started hearing voices, which was their own, which he said was their own. Um, what, what, what did I say just a moment ago? Um, uh, conscious, uh, you know, you're, you're uh, right and wrong. Um, so that was, of course, actually pretty unfreudian, you know, Freud was uh, Nietzsche, Nietzsche and um, the like. So I don't know uh, where, where, where I got the idea to, um, um, well, uh, delegate the, that kind of um, relationship uh, away to the schizos, um, schizophrenics. Uh, that, that, that was a dick move uh, from Freud. <laughs> yeah, I guess. <laughs> um, but I do want to. I want to. I want to say out loud that we should talk about this again when we go uh, there in like ten pages from now or whatever when they start talking about like what makes the schizophrenic sick because I think it will be interesting to sort of talk about the way Freud looks at it versus the way that Deleuze and Guattari look at it. Yeah, I've got um, all the, the, the Freuds memorized. So um, if if Ken um, has a blackout uh, or something, um, I can uh, hop in. All right. Uh, now I think I'll move on to the next uh, paragraph. For those looking for a thesis topic on psychoanalysis, one should not suggest vast considerations on analytic epistemology, but modest and rigorous topics such as the theory of maids or domestic servants in Freud's thought. There are some real indices in such area areas. On the subject of maids, who are present everywhere in the cases studied by Freud, there occurs an exemplary hesitation in Freudian thought, a hesitation too quickly resolved in favor of what was to become a dogma of psychoanalysis. Philippe Girard, in unpublished remarks that seem to us to have a wide application, situates the problem at several levels. In the first place, Freud discovers his own Oedipus in a complex social context that brings into play the older half-brother from the rich side of the family, and the thievish maid as the poor woman. Secondly, the familial romance and fantasy activity in general will be presented by Freud as a veritable drift of the social field, where one substitutes persons of a higher or lower rank for their parents, the son of a princess kidnapped by gypsies or the son of a poor man taken in by bourgeois. Oedipus was already doing this when he claimed a low birth of servant parents. Thirdly, the rat man not only installs his neurosis in a social field determined from one end to the other as military, he not only makes it revolve around a form of torture originating in the Orient, but also in this very field he causes his neurosis to oscillate between two poles constituted by the rich woman and the poor woman, under the effect of a strange unconscious communication with the unconscious of the father. Lacan was the first to emphasize these themes, which were enough to challenge the whole of Oedipus, and he shows the existence of a social complex where the subject at times attempts to assume his own role, but at the price of a splitting of the sexual object into a rich woman and a poor woman, and at other times ensures the unity of the object, but this time at the price of splitting of his own social function at the other extremity of the chain. Fourthly, the wolfman demonstrates a marked taste for the poor woman, the peasant girl in all fours washing some clothes, 
or the servant scrubbing the floor. This is going to be for someone who has a better understanding of Freud than me. Okay, so quick question. The rat man and the wolf man are two different people, right? Or Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. <clears throat> yeah, it's um it's uh, really uh, coming down to uh, well um they they leave it out here. But it's basically male impotence um what is um, the the issue. Uh, because uh, the male fantasy of, of course, the poor woman who needs help, the damsel in distress, um, is uh, very appealing. Uh, because, or like the the whore with uh, with the golden heart, you know, is um, also a uh, male um, trope, which is um, very much um, a direction people take when they start um, trying to get it on so to speak so um yeah th- th- that's what's underlying here you know it's it's all based on uh, the male patriarchy and freud knew that so th- that's not the problem you know it's it's not the problem that freud didn't know um so that that's where where the lusa quatari step in and well take the the lead you know it's very uh, interesting i think i, I like uh, the way they uh, describe it no, it's a really, uh, I just spent a few moments, uh, essentially what this paragraph's doing, and correct me if I'm wrong, is going through a handful of uh, Freudian sort of meta-analyses that have existed. The Ratman and the Wolfman I know of as different specific texts of his, where he broke down different people and he went, this is the Wolfman, this is the Ratman, here's how they relate to society, here's why they do what they do, here's their stories, and it's the nicknames he gave them uh, supposedly for anonymity, uh, although yeah, I I I know uh, the, indeed for uh, anonymity, and I um, I've read uh, the the Redman uh, way before, um, so so it it's a bit bit hazy on the Redman, but the Wolfman I I read quite uh, recently, and um, um, the the thing about the peasant girl was that it was basically he was four uh, the Wolfman was four years old I think maybe three three or four like um, a bit younger than the Kleine Hans or Little Hans. And um, he, the, the, what was it again? I think she, she, she corrected him. Um, he, and yeah, the, he uh, urinated um, before her. He saw, he, he had his, uh, his maiden, his, his help maiden, or uh, how, how do you call those people? Um, um the, the, her, his um his help uh, le, le, let's say it's 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 workers is basically uh, his slaves but i wouldn't go there but european you know and uh, whatever uh, so uh, his his um worker lady was cleaning up his pee because um he he was dominant with her by um while well, urinating um nakedly in front of her uh, in the kitchen, so at four years old, he he made um, a sort of um, he, he got a perverse um, complex um, uh, with this um, well uh, lower class um, woman. So that was the first thing, and I, I think she gave him a re, re of uh, correction after, which might have has well some. Uh, sound of an erection, you know, so 
who knows how a child uh, processes that. But uh, later on, when he's like um, pubescent, uh, 16 or something, he sees this um, uh, this this girl uh, his age, um, uh, maybe two years older. I think uh, he was like 16, and she was like 18, uh, if I'm uh, correct. And uh, she was washing clothes uh, clothes at um, uh, the uh, the pond or the the stream or something or the river, and uh, she um, she stooped down um, uh, to her knees and she displayed the same um, position, um, the the sort of um, how do you say I wouldn't say degrading but uh, more or less um, the feminine position of like um well uh what, what we may call the bottom in doggy style <laughs> I'll, I'll just say it like that's that's what it that's what yeah, it is yeah it's true it's exact so while she was displaying um while, while she was in the in that position um the the wolfman uh uh fell in love with her rachel um uh, you know and started to um that was the, from that moment on. He was obsessed with that girl, which, of course, because of his um, his stance, he was uh, he was um, uh, royalty basically, or some. Um, he, he had a name. Uh, 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 how do you say that? The blue blood. Um, he was high class. High class, yeah, upper class, whatever. And um, that, that that could it be. So um, that was a problem, and of course, he he had a terrible. Uh, his mother was was yeah a pretty um, yeah his mother was dead was pretty dead so he had his nanya and his dad and his dad was I think never there so and he his dad was very strict and his nanya was his uh, his um, his grandmother uh, on which he started to, to project uh, sexual fantasies because he didn't have a mother so. Uh, that, that developed very strangely for the Wolfman. Well, and, and um, well, the the Wolfman's entire story and the Ratman's is fascinating. But this, uh, yeah. this this paragraph specifically, and the next one is where they start taking it down. But this one is basically about here is how they came out, and and as Alyosha linked to um, the the case of the Wolfman specifically, he ended up coming out and saying, "Well, this Freud lied. I wasn't cured. I didn't witness my parents having sex. I have no idea." Like. He was a quack is basically how the Wolfman ended up uh, sort of viewing the whole thing. And and uh, I want to get into the next uh, paragraph because it's about sort of taking this down. Um, any last notes before we move on? Because I think that was a really, it was a super deep dive into some Freudian shit. Uh, literally Freudian. Yeah. All right. Cool. Um, to continue. The fundamental problem with regard to these texts is the following. Must we see in all these sexual social investments of the libido and these object choices mere dependencies of a familial Oedipus? Must we save Oedipus at all costs by interpreting these investments and object choices as defenses against incest? Thus the familial romance or Oedipus's own wish to have been born of poor parents who would cleanse him of his crime? Must these be understood as compromises and substitutes for incest? Thus, in the wolfman, the peasant girl is a substitute for the sister, having the same name as she, or on, or the girl on hands and knees, working as a substitute for the mother, surprised in coitus. 
and in The Rat Man, the disguised repetition of the paternal situation, making it possible to enrich or impregnate Oedipus with a fourth symbolic term charged with accounting for the splittings through which all libido invests in the social field. Freud makes a firm choice of this last direction, all the more firm in that, according to his own confession, he wants to set things straight with Jung and Adler. And after having ascertained in the Wolfman case the existence of an intention of debasing the woman as love object, he concludes that it is merely a matter of rationalization, and that the true underlying determination almost always leads us back to the sister, to the mommy, considered as the only purely erotic motives. Taking up the eternal refrain of Oedipus, the eternal lullaby, he writes, quote, a child pays no regard to social distinctions, which have little meaning for it as yet, and it classes people of inferior rank with its parents if they love it as its parents do, end quote. I'm actually going to dive directly into the next paragraph because it continues very nicely. It's a little long, though, so be ready. We always fall back into the false alternative where Freud was led by Oedipus and then confirmed in this position by his controversy with Adler and Jung. Either, he says, you will abandon the sexual position of the libido in favor of an individual and social wheel to power, or in favor of a prehistoric collective unconscious. Or you will recognize Oedipus, making of it the sexual abode of the libido, and you will make daddy-mommy into the purely erotic motive. Oedipus, the touchstone of the pure psychoanalyst, on which to sharpen the sacred blade of a successful castration. It's a great fucking sentence. Yet what was the other direction, glimpsed for a moment by Freud, apropos of the familial romance, before the Oedipal trapdoor slammed shut? It is the direction rediscovered, at least hypothetically, by Philippe Girard. There is no family where vacuoles are not arranged, and where extrafamilial breaks are not manifest by means of which the libido is engulfed, in order to sexually invest the non-familial, i.e. the other class, as determined under the empirical rubrics of the richest and the poorest, and sometimes both at once. Wouldn't the great other, indispensable to the position of desire, be the social other, social difference apprehended and invested as the non-family within the family itself? The other class is by no means grasped by the libido as a magnified or impoverished image of the mother, but as the foreign, the non-mother, the non-father, the non-family, the index of what is non-human in sex and without which the libido would not assemble its desiring machines. Class struggle goes to the heart of the ordeal of desire. The familial romance is not a derivative of Oedipus. Oedipus is a drift of the familial romance and thereby of the social field. It is not a question of denying the importance of parental coitus and the position of the mother, but when this position makes the mother resemble a floor washer or an animal, what authorizes Freud to say that the animal or the maid stand for the mother, independently of the social or generic differences, instead of concluding that the mother also functions as something other than the mother, and gives rise in the child's libido to an entire differentiated social investment at the same time as she opens the way to a relation with the non-human sex. For whether the mother works or not, whether the mother is from a richer or poorer background than the father, etc., has to do with breaks and flows that traverse the family, but that overreach it on all sides and are not familial. So this was 
a lot, I think, I'm going to toss one out, really to get to that last sentence and that really the last uh, four words and are not familial. Um, we're, we're talking about uh, moving from the familial to alliances in our relations with people. Overall, that's how I read the last two paragraphs, three paragraphs. They're, this is their critique of the familial and saying everything we've done, everything we're doing, we are coding as part of this Oedipal familial constraint. This is the mother. This is the father. Oh, I'm related to this because your mother, blah, blah, blah. The wolf man, the rat man, all this shit is them just saying, hey, actually, what if uh, our familial relations are actually uh, sort of undercoding? This really rich tapestry of vibrations that is our alliances and these other connections that are happening across this massive social strata. And what if the familial relations are only a subset of that? Just a thought. That's how I take it. Yeah, I think you are pretty, uh, pretty on spot. I, I'd, um, I'd like to summarize it in a way uh, by saying that the way I view it, which is similar um, I think, um, and would sound like uh, I, I would um, give it words like they are they have isolated uh, basically the 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 drives because that's pretty much what they're leaving out, right? They they they're talking about everything but uh, the the drives and um, they replaced the drives with um, well. Um, uh, machines and um, uh, assemblages, um, which um, uh, is of course um, very reasonable. This, so they keep um, a lot of Freud. They, they keep more or less uh, the husk of Freud, but the soul, the drives, they've replaced with um, assemblages, machines, and uh, Marxist um, uh, theories and um, uh, terms um yes well but, and and i uh, but yeah. but and they do it in a way because in the chat they're having the other half of this conversation which is uh to me they're reading freud through lacan and then referencing lacan as this uh, when they talk about and they use the term the great other i in in english we commonly actually use the, the lacanian term the big other uh but i think that's what they're referencing here and they're essentially saying hey so you start from this place of like this Oedipal position and Lacan comes up with this concept of the big other that is this all encompassing sort of other that, that is watching us at all times. And it's like, hey, one, one step further. What about this social other? Huh? Huh? And that's like them saying, hey, Lacan, what about this? It's a really interesting sort of read through the entire thing. Again, like they talk about uh, Lacan blew up the pillars of the statue in such a way that the statue fell perfectly in its own hole. Uh, and yeah, that... But, but, but uh, Lacan was not radical enough in the sense that um, he, he, he kept uh, the drive theory. And uh, so if you keep the drive theory, um, that means that the, um, the, 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 the pulses you get um, generated from uh, without and within um, determine uh, your place in uh, the unconscious. And um, if you displace drives with um, Marxist um, philosophy, 
you um, go a step further and say, okay, all right, I'm um, a person, an individual, I functioned, and um, I get impulses and give impulses in this, in this strata uh, rather than socius, um, which um, makes it, it more like, um, yeah, what is beyond the big order, you know? Actually, nothing, of course, but um, if, if you, if you displace uh, where the big order takes place outside of a, of a um, psychoanalytical mathesis, um, if you um, give it a, a Marxist mathesis, um, I, I think uh, that's what uh, Deleuze and Guattari are getting at. And I'm very excited to hear what's next. Yeah, on this, I will just say one thing, uh, not to piss on uh, D&G's parade, because, you know, that's not something that I normally do. But they're not saying anything different from sociology that says that the family is the first uh, nexus of socialization. You know, this is what integrates the, the person to answer to the need of society instead of their own need. And, you know, the perversion would just be this this weird, this... this um, this twist into the Oedipal complex that is kind of failed and, you know, needs to be re-engaged in the sense, in a corrective uh, intervention way to um, re redirect the desire of the person towards, you know, what's useful for society at the normative level. Well, and I think that this paragraph agrees with that. I actually don't think they necessarily disagree how I... They're disagreeing. They're just saying something that is really common in social sciences. Well, I think it's common and now. At the time, it was kind of common because it's from, I, I think Durkheim was already talking about stuff like this. Yeah. Well, I think in, in general, the social, like, I, it's one of those things I've, I'm trying to look back because we're talking about 60 years and social sciences and how they viewed a, a lot of different things have has changed. But 50 I started feeling bad. <laughs> Sorry, 53 years, not 60, um, which is pretty close. But um, I, I think, I think I, I don't know how, how I view what they're talking about. And I'm, I'm sure in social sciences it's true. But I, I know we're talking about also in a sort of more, I don't want to use common tongue, but we're, we're talking about colloquially how people discuss how people relate to the world. And I think for sure, well, I think everyone agrees that the family becomes sort of your representation for things early on. And it's how you're sort of, you know, grown into society at some point with there is sort of a switch that you can take where you can uh, utilize that model of your family and you can be sort of pushing everything else that happens. Because once you supposedly become an adult and you join society, whatever that is at whatever stage, the tapestry of life becomes immensely more complicated than just how you deal with your parents. Uh, the This server, how I talk to all of you people is fucking so confusing and so difficult and so many more layers. But if I just say, well, I've got this very simple view of the world and I'm going to continue putting things into mommy, daddy, me, and I'm going to shape that, that familial sort of relationship is something I put everything in. Whereas what they're saying is actually you can have this moment of opening up even further into this this larger sort of stratum of how society operates at large, which is far more complicated. Did I misunderstand you, Roger? Oh, no, not at all. Okay. 
I, and I, I, like, and I, it, it's just a moment because you know there's always a, there's always this process of adaptation. You know, you're adapting within the family because you know you're being crafted, you're being socialized, and socialization changes from one instance to the other. You know, for example, school is different from uh, the family, so you're answering differently in school how your desires are being expressed, allowed or not, and then work, and then you know, and there's the whole normative space of like what is allowed to do and how you express your desires in society and uh... well it's an interesting example because it's one of the things if you want to talk about something that has changed over the last 60 years is uh, the role of teachers and how they relate to the child is much more now a mother child relationship than a teacher child relationship as it was actually 60 years ago very different sort of relationships with, to the point where people even talk about them being babysitting factories, not so much learning institutions, especially at younger ages. The family is so ingrained in everything we do at this point. Well, there, there's a, well I think that's interesting because it's the con continuation of the family in a nurturing and not into an education in a phallocratic sense, you know, in the sense that uh, before it was imposed, it was a discipline. You know, imposed to you, you need to behave that way or there's going to be consequences, either, you know, uh, psychological or physical. And now it's about nurturing, like meeting the child where the child is, you know, maximizing the potential. There's a whole governmentality of uh, children right now that is going on because before we were, you know, imposing stuff. Now we're like following them and letting, uh, you know, society's imperatives go through the children because the children will start expressing it that themselves. I just wanted to, to insert there um, because you mentioned um, school and teachers and in the 60s, right? Um, so Target Parsons in the 60s wrote about education and school in, in the US, right? And school as a social system and there he kind of theorized already or, or um, looked at school and how it relates to the family, right? And um, he has this whole bit about how primary school um, is basically this this dual, uh, like this, this um, in-between, between real school and family and how um, primary teachers, primary school teachers, um, go from being this this mother figure um parent figure to the uh, to the teacher figure proper and introduce the child into this new social system that's um different from the family and there's actually a whole school of education and family sociology that's very much alive today that uh, still uses a lot of that what Talcott Parsons wrote there and um, also heavily draws on psychoanalysis and Freud and um, Levi-Strauss and um, the whole structuralist um, psychoanalysis um, reception without going into Lacan necessarily, more like uh, the, uh, the, the sociological and anthropological um, psychoanalysis reception there. Roger, can I ask what the trend, what the original French is of when they say Oedipus is adrift of the familial romance? I don't know if this term has come up before. I'm just curious about what they said originally. 
It's at the they're top. The, the, this is on 355 for me when they're saying class struggle of the ordeal of desire. The familial romance is not a derivative of Oedipus. Oedipus is a drift of the familial romance. Do they mean like it's a delay? Is that what they're saying? Or? I think what they're saying is that it's um, it's it's almost replacing the the, the drift uh, of uh, for your theory, uh, kind of like drive, right? I do Freud uh, drift um, is uh, German uh, for drive. It's a uh, they say derive, derive. Um, it, it's drifting. Drifting, it's a, it's a variation of the uh, familial romance. So Oedipus would be a variation of familial romance and not the other way around. But it, for, just for the translation, just to pass from French to English. That basically, it's yeah, a, it's a, is it a little bit of uh, every rectangle, every square is a rectangle, but not every rectangle is a square? Kind of the social field has Oedipus within it, but Oedipus is not the entire social field. It says Oedipus is a drift of the familiar opants and thereby the social field. Feels like they are saying, again, they talk early on. Oedipus does exist. They're not saying Oedipus, Oedipal, anything doesn't exist. They're saying that it's not uh, everything, that it's but, the but familiar. It's not, it's fam- not, yeah, because what they're saying is that, you know, they, they take the model of Freud, because model of Freud says that Oedipus is, you know, uh, the canvas on which everything is painted. What they're saying is like, no, 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 no. Uh, the canvas is the receptacle of everything that's being painted. So they reverse it, saying that it starts from a collective desire, the social feel, which is incarnated into the familial romance, into the family. And then it's, um, it creates this kind of diagram, which is Oedipus. I, I would like to keep that uh, uh, metaphor you used. I'm gonna, we're gonna, I'm gonna do something with that because I really like the canvas. Really, really good metaphor for me. Um, any any last notes here before we move on to the next paragraph? I do want to keep trying to charge ahead a little bit here. From the start, we wonder if the libido knows father mother, or rather, if it makes the parents function as something entirely different, as agents of production in relation to other agents in socio-desiring production. From the point of view of libidinal investment, parents not only open to the other, they are themselves countersected and divided by the other who defamilializes them according to the laws of social production and desiring production. The mother herself functions as rich woman or poor woman, maid or princess, pretty girl or old lady, animal or blessed virgin, and all at once. Everything passes into the machine that causes the properly familial determinations to disintegrate. What the orphan libido invests is a field of social desire, a field of production and anti-production with its breaks and flows, where the parents are apprehended in non-parental functions and roles confronting other roles and other functions. Does this amount to saying that the parents have no unconscious role as such? Of course they have an unconscious role, but in two quite specific ways that deprive them even more of their supposed autonomy, in accordance with the distinction made by embryologists with regard to the egg between the stimulus and the organizer, parents are stimuli having an indifferent value. Well, my text, what is someone's text there say? That's an awkward phrasing in my text. 
Stimuli having an indifferent value. It's a terrible sentence. Are stimuli having an indifferent value that trigger the allocation of gradients or zones of intensity on the body without organs? It is in relation to the parents that in each case, wealth or poverty will be situated, the relative richest or poorest, as empirical forms of social difference. So that within this difference, the parents again appear, allocated to such and such a zone, but under a different rubric from that of parents. And the organizer is the social field of desire, which alone designates the zones of intensity with all the beings that populate these zones and determine their libidinal investment. Secondly, the parents as parents are terms of application that express the reduction of the social field invested by the libido to a finite aggregate of destination, where the destination finds nothing but impasses and blockages consonant with the mechanisms of psychic and social repression active in this field. Oedipus, such is Oedipus. In each of these scenes, the third thesis of schizoanalysis posits the primacy of the libidinal investments of the social field over the familial investment, both in point of fact and by statute. An indifferent stimulus at the beginning, an extrinsic result at the point of, of arrival. The relation to the non-familial is always primary, in the form of sexuality of the field in social production and the non-human sex in desiring production, gigantism and dwarfism. All right. Uh, I have a feeling there's some... Okay, uh, let's try to take this down a little bit, a little bit, a little bit. Yeah, this this section is painful. Uh, you're not alone, Alyosha. This section is very painful for me to read. Some of it reads beautifully and poetic and phenomenally. And then you get to a paragraph like this where I... Just, it's funny, yeah, because there's two authors and we can really see who's writing right now. And now it's not been reorganized by Deleuze. We'll, we'll start with the beginning here where they say, uh, let me try to, let me give my take on the, on the beginning here. Uh, the mother here functions as everything. In the, in the familial instance, the mother is basically many, many, many things at once. And everything in that sense passes into the social field. But once in the social field, the parents are another node on the graph. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So let, let's, let's, let's say something and then we're going to be able to understand it from this. The parents are mediators. You know, they're a machine that actually permit the passage from the social to the child. And then it's going to be easier to, for us to understand this stuff. Say that one more time for me. In the the parents are mediators. You know, they're not they're not final um, authorities in the sense that they're passing the norms and they're passing the laws and they're passing the desire and passing the the logic of the social feel to the child. You know, it's always in that direction. So they're 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 producing machines that have effects on the child. So the child is you know responding to daddy mommy, but like their only interface. Uh, to a bigger world. So mommy daddy is ultimately an apparatus uh, that stands between the child and the social field and essentially grinds and repurposes the norms of the social field for the child and feeds them as such, uh, like a, a bird pre-digesting food for its babies. So in, in a general economy of, uh, 
of disciplining on, or authority or, or learning, it's, it functions as the same way as the teacher in school or the boss into the factory. Well, maybe we should say it's not that it, it parents do always function as one thing or another, as a boss or a teacher. Uh, it's that they can, and that especially in looking things at things through an Oedipal complex or through a, in a psychoanalytic lens, it's always going to come up that the parents are these same sort of authority figures. Like your boss is really your your dad because your Oedipus complex is this constant. I think I think another way of putting what they're getting at in this section is that the the Oedipus complex isn't the aggregate of arrival that you always end up going back to the Oedipus complex again, again, and again. That's just not what it is. And I think that's what they're trying to say. Yeah, I think um, that that there is some sort of pre-giving or uh, forgiving. Um, if you can, can put it uh, like that without, um, I, I don't know if I'm maybe a bit off, but um, I think that there's a sense of forgiving um, the uh, everything um, which concludes uh, the, the, the Marxist dialectic, you know. Um, and uh, I, I think that that's really nice, actually. So would that mean a sense? So how, how I read this beginning part where it says the mother herself functions as all of these things, everything passes into the machine that causes the properly familial determinations to disintegrate. Uh, that my son, uh, he, he experiences basically all of life. He's three through myself and my wife. And uh, we represent and we are everything to him at some point or another, whether it's a direct food source or a cook or a disciplinarian or a teacher or a guy playing video games or the worker or the boss or the whatever. We are or more are, pony, you know? Yeah, no. <laughs> what he makes you into. Yeah, no, it's uh, the the bouncy bed that he likes to jump on my stomach or uh, the I started teaching him how to box. So like they, these these things uh daddy blank daddy cook daddy boss daddy that uh it's the nature of being three years old he doesn't have a real boss he doesn't have a real cook he's got daddy mommy uh so like that's essentially we are all of those things very early on and then at some point those begin to disintegrate and the investments the libidinal investments in the rest of the so the socius the social field that exists uh organ reorganizes those and does so, they're saying that that those alliances and those those attachments take precedence and are the sort of real connections versus saying everything is ultimately familial and shaped like that. I, yeah, I think I think you're yeah you're close for sure. Like the they are totally saying that the like material conditions of a society, the social connections that the parents are involved in are prime primary. Right there, the, that's the gigantism and dwarfism thing that they work towards at the end. That's the. Uh, social production conditioning the ways in which desiring production can function so the the third thesis here um is what i would think i might need explained then uh the primacy of the libidinal investments of the social field over the familial investment both in point of fact and by statute colon an indifferent stimulus at the beginning an extrinsic result at the point of arrival now that beginning part i get that part makes sense to me that it's uh, the social field over familial investment, my alliances and who I choose to parlay with or deal with or fuck or be a boss with or have a shitty reading group every Monday with, this is more determinant of me than 
uh, edipalizing all of these things and turning them back into sort of familial relations. The second part here is the thing I'm not quite following. An indifference, indifferent stimulus at the beginning, an extrinsic result at the point of arrival. What is that? One thing about the first part, uh, when they say statute in French, it's droit, which means law. So it's it's clearer when you say it law. Because the law is the you know the symbolic representation that like uh, exists over facts, because facts are like material kind of things. Maybe I'm wrong, but I think I can take a crack at interpreting this uh, last sort of clause. Um, so an indifferent stimulus at the beginning is their way of I think saying that the child doesn't experience parents as these sort of global entities that we call parents, right? This sort of complete role that includes all these, you know, different things for everyone, different degrees of being authoritarian. It's, it's, that's, that's the kind of representation way of looking at uh, a family. Uh, that's not how the child experiences it in their view, right? That the, the parent is all these things is the pony is the cook is the, is the uh, worker or the maid and, and they experience it kind of, they are experiencing these these parental figures kind of as this like mishmash that in turn conditions the way in which they can interact with the social field. Um, yeah, I think it's easier to start from the the outside to start with society instead of starting with the child, in the sense that um, when they say an indifferent stimulus at the beginning, this is what's like composed. Uh, into the social field, just something that goes through everything. And an extrinsic result at the point of arrival, this is the child. The child is the result as the arrival of those drives, of those desire that cut through society, family, and into the child. So Okay, okay. well said. You're, you're always produced by the exterior. Like right now, like I'm sitting in front of my computer, uh, you know, there's all of you online with me, you know, there's like physical interface and electricity, internet and everything. Me as a Roger or whatever, like the name you, you know me from, uh, is always the product, the products of stuff that is going through all this assemblage. And I'm just the, like a receptor and I'm being crafted constantly by this. So as a little kid, I was defined by uh the the way my my dad and my mom were defined by society because you know they were this this wall between me and the rest of the world so the way they were produced was just producing me in return and then they say in the form of sexuality of the field in social production and the non-human sex in desiring production you know the, there's two there's two parts in the form of sexuality of the field of social production so social production is really the anthropomorphic um, um, way of interacting with other people. So, you know, there's a form of sexuality that is being taught to the child. And, you know, that's why it's being edipalized. And the non-human sex in desiring production, this is like the uh, non-anthropocentric form of sex, just like reproduction and, you know, all of this. And how it organizes desire that actually passes through us. I'm having a really fun time. I'm, I'm understanding this a little bit more. It's uh, because, again, we're trying to get to ultimately how the uh, alliances instead of the familial uh, can take precedence and how they can work. Uh, 
I, I'm I'm really this is good shit. See, and uh, for what you're saying about the video games and the tutorials in anthropology, what we're saying is um, a, a thing. For example, when you're perceiving a thing um, into the modernist understanding, you know it it forms into your consciousness and you, you perceive the thing by representing it like in a Kantian kind of way. Uh, but what they're saying is that the perspective is always in things. So the perspective is always external to you. And, and I think that, you know, the example that you gave with uh, the tutorial is that the gamer is a blank slate and it's being produced by the tutorial to have certain effects and like to, incorporate certain reactions you know understand the mechanics and stuff but it's the mechanics are being imposed to you through this exercise so through repetition you are embodying the logic of the system so the whole teaching moment is you being cast as a specific subject within that apparatus which is a game or the family or the school and um yeah, from there you can play the game because you have been given the basic, and by playing the game, you become the game. I, I would, I, I would jump in real quick because I think uh, more. My point is that there's there's two big sort of differentiators between how these games operate, and we're understanding uh, sort of the function of uh, sort of how games work and how games teach people over the last five years a lot more than we have in the past, and how people learn through play, but. The sort of two ways tutorials have worked is um, one is where you really focus on the loop. The loop is here is how the things relate to each other directly. You do X, you do Y, you do Z, you get you get A. Boom, 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 boom. And you do this with a person four or five times. And then at the end of that, you can let them free and then they will begin doing that loop over and over. It's very easy to instill upon a person that sense of habit inside of that. The other way is where you actually teach people uh, well, if you do X and Y and Z, but you can also do Y, Z and X, because here's how these things actually work and interrelate and how these different machine parts can function. You get something that allows people to have a lot more expansive sort of systemic understanding of a game. Uh, the difference would be something such as uh, uh, idle games, which are, if you're not familiar with, are games purely about the loop. Uh, which I would almost say are the most Oedipalized fucking games that there are. And then uh, opposite, that would be something like Minecraft, which has almost no direct uh, loop as far as you can tell, even though it has a number of them. And it's much more about sort of these different directions you can go and making your own relations between the different ways that you can function from the tutorial. It's a really interesting... It's it's an interesting sort of thought process because we're talking about sort of that first loop we all go on, the the family and how we relate. I've got my father, I've got my mother, I've got me, and I'm growing through life. We all have this in common in some way or another. And then at some point, uh, the reality is that the relation to the non-familial becomes primary. Actually, it's always primary. Uh, and to D&G, it takes place in the form of sexuality of the field in social production and the non-human sex in desiring production, that gigantism and dwarfism, the, the large and small, I suppose you would say, um, the social production and how we invest our passions and our desires in that versus the pure desiring machines, the non-human sex. It's a really great way to look at it. I'm starting to crack a little bit more. 
Uh, yes, Juliet, Cookie Clicker is an idle game. It's a game about the loop and repetition and the safety in that. Uh, and they do extremely well, actually, globally. Idle games are exceptionally profitable, and it's very depressing. Um, but it's, a, it's an interesting... That first loop and training people about how the world and how things relate to each other, and then everything else takes that shape. It's an interesting thought. Uh, any last notes before I move on to the next paragraph? One often has the impression that families have understood the lesson of psychoanalysis only too well, even from far off or by osmosis in the air of the times. They play at Oedipus, a sublime alibi. But behind all this, there is an economic situation. The mother reduced to housework or to a difficult and uninteresting job on the outside. Children whose future remains uncertain. The father who has had it with feeding all those mouths. In short, a fundamental relation to the outside of which the psychoanalyst washes his hands, too attentive to see that his clients play nice games. Now the economic situation, the relation to the outside, is what the libido invests and counter-invests sexual libido. One gets off on flows and the breaks in these flows. Let us consider for a moment the motivations that lead someone to be psychoanalyzed. It involves a situation of economic dependence that has become unbearable for desire or full of conflicts for the investment of desire. <clears throat> the psychoanalyst, who says so many things about the necessity for money and the cure, remains supremely indifferent to the question of who is footing the bill. For example, the analysis reveals the unconscious conflicts of a woman with her husband, but the husband is paying for the wife's analysis. This isn't the only time we encountered the duality of money as the structure of external financing and as a means of internal payment, along with the objective dissimulation that it comp comprises, essential to the capitalist system. But it is interesting to find this essential concealment miniaturized, occupying a place of honor in the analyst's office. The analyst talks about Oedipus, about castration in the phallus, about the necessity of assuming one's sex, as Freud says, the human sex, and the necessity for the woman to renounce her desire for the penis and for the man to renounce his male protest. We maintain that there is not one woman, more particularly not one child, who can as such assume her or his situation in a capitalist society, precisely because this situation has nothing to do with the phallus and castration, but directly concerns an unbearable economic dependence. And the woman and the children who succeed in assuming do so only by detours and determinations completely distinct from their being woman and their being child. Nothing to do with the phallus, but much to do with desire, with sexuality as desire. For the phallus has never been either the object or the cause of desire, but is itself the castrating apparatus, the machine for putting lack into desire, for drying up all the flows and for making all the breaks from the outside and from the real into one and the same break with the outside with the real. See, that's really interesting because now you have two systems of thought, one with the Oedipus and the other one with capitalism. Oedipus is the template that is, you know, supposedly found into the psychology of people. But the second uh, model says that the capitalist template is what is organizing people from an exterior and not from an interior. So it's, it's really interesting because at this moment you can see 
because when they're saying, oh, you know, you're cutting flows, you're allowing flows, making the pipe and stuff like this. Um, now they're saying that the pipe is not the Oedipus. The, the pipe is actually the assemblage of the capitalist society that actually allows or cut desire. And Oedipus would just be a result of that. Yeah, but now we have an uh, Hegelian problem because uh, the dialectics of, uh, yeah, the dialectics don't add up anymore. But that's the thing, it, because it's not a Hegelian form of thinking. No, but uh, why not go uh, all the way with it and make it um, Marxist um, thinking, you know? Why why, why um, this um, in between? Oh, but I think, well, I think that uh, Deleuze and Guattari are still within the, um, the Marxist form of thinking. It's just that instead of like, just talking about capitalism, they make capitalism a field of investment of desire. Yeah, I agree. Okay, I agree, I guess, yes. And you know, it's really difficult when you are trying to um, explain those relations because that's what I do. And I'm, I'm always like, well, there's a dialectic, you know, between the macro and the micro. So it's not really a dialectic. It's just a continuation. But it, it, it would make sense to explain this into a dialectical way as well. So I don't think that those, you know, a lot of the times when we're into like the Rose and Guattari, we tend to like push the, the the logic of dialectics outside. But I think they could be complementary in some way. I think that they are uh, not uh, overly creative or, or anything. Uh, I, I hope you don't, didn't get that um, uh, that sense from me. But um, that, that's me personally. You know, there's, uh, there's also, uh, I, I think they, they, they put it, um, where, where it hurts, and I, I think that that's important, you know. In the critique on Freud, you you, you need to be. Um... Mm-hmm. And you know this this the specific because they go into the, the the specificity of the clinic, saying that you know we're not asking who's paying, but but this is the condition of capitalism, you know, because it's payment. The whole relationships in capitalism are always economic relationships. They're not like daddy-mommy things, really, because, you know, capitalism encompasses everything in our existences. And But the the, the feel of psychoanalytic or psychology, uh, it, it's like it's taking the individual outside of its ecology of relations, you know, as something that just is like floating out there that doesn't have like any real... Um, relationship with the world and we're trying to fix the individual in the way it it sees the exterior world but it's be as it's being produced by this exterior world it's it's a completely failed uh form of intervention because you know you're not managing the environmental conditions of the person just the internal conditions uh, uh presupposing that they exist and we're not really sure that they really exist. We create them to act on them. Well, and actually, I, I'm going to go ahead and jump to the next paragraph because I think it also continues that same point about what they're talking about here. So unless there's last thoughts on this paragraph, uh, I believe we're now in Guattari's writing. Uh, we have been for a few paragraphs. So we seem to be on a few things that he kind of wrote about a few times. Um. Too much always penetrates from the outside, where the analyst is concerned. Too much penetrates into his office. Even the closed familial scene appears to him to be an excessive outside. 
He promotes the pure analytic scene, an office Oedipus, and an office castration that should be its own reality, its own proof, and that, contrary to the movement, proves itself only by not working, by being interminable. Psychoanalysis has become quite a stupefying drug, where the strangest personal dependence allows the clients to forget, during the time spent in sessions on the couch, the economic dependencies that drive them there in the first place, a bit like the way of decoding of flows entails a reinforcement of bondage. Do these psychoanalysts who are oedipalizing women, children, blacks, and animals know what they're doing? We dream of entering their offices, opening the windows and saying, it smells stuffy in here, some relation with the outside if you please. For desire does not survive cut off from the outside, cut off from its economic and social investments and counter-investments. And if there is, to use Freud's terms, a purely erotic motive, it is certainly not Oedipus that harbors it, nor the phallus that actuates it, nor castration that transmits it. The erotic, the purely erotic motive, pervades the social field. Wherever desiring machines are agglutinated or dispersed in social machines, and where love objects, where love object choices occur at the meeting place of the two kinds of machine, following lines of escape or integration. Will Aaron leave with his flute, which is not a phallus, but a desiring machine and a process of deterritorialization? I don't know what that last part is a reference to, but one time at Bandcamp. <laughs> yeah, I want to say it's it's it feels like they're making a reference that's a little bit early, um, but but uh, the rest of this is is essentially uh, continuing that same point as you two were talking that um, the psychoanalyst. Uh, almost classically believes and that I've been to a few counselors and a few psychotherapists myself that their office is cut off from the rest of the world in a nice sanctuary, a vacuum chamber where everything is safe. And it's really, really, really not true. Uh, and that's their point is that the social field pervades the walls of the psychoanalyst's office. But it's, it's, um, it's funny because it's um it the way they put it it would be like a moment of suspension of the alienate, alienating conditions of capitalism in in the sense that you know the the clinic is you know it's um it's a hub like a completely uh, um, close hub in regard to like society's pressures and like people would find this kind of like you know fetal positioning kind of thing going back into the womb where the world cannot touch them but i don't think you know like as you're saying i don't think that's what's happening you go there and you know it's trauma and trauma trauma fucking thrown back at you all the time uh, and i definitely think i'm just going to agree with i think what alyosha is saying here is uh do these psychoanalysts who are oedipalizing women children blacks and animals know what they're doing is a, is a reference to fanon uh, I don't know how to pronounce his name. I actually don't know if I've ever heard it said aloud until I just now, just now. I don't know. I'm not going to pronounce it how you pronounce anything. I can't. I don't have that accent. It's sad. I'm American. So uh, Fanon. Uh, That's it, good. It, uh, the, who absolutely wrote psychoanalytic theory uh, in regards to, uh, I mean, everything. Being hyper-territorialized and taken over by the French peoples as a black culture kind of his bag um so uh there this is a this is a reference to fanon 
you know, let's take this example. And uh, because, you know, for white people like us, it's kind of difficult to understand our conditions of alienation. But like, how does this collective trauma of being colonized and being like unrooted and like used for labor and like completely objectified and dehumanized, uh, how can this be solved into psychoanalytic uh, intervention on the individual? How, how can we just like work on the individual without working on the condition, the condition that created this kind of form of delirium or uh, malaise or like the, the this, this, uh, this this difficulty of dealing with reality you know it, it's it's weird and like we're like okay well, i understand that you know this is clearly not enough we need a form of uh, redistributive justice or like transformative justice whatever else but when it comes down to the the understanding that we have of therapy and of psychology we never really go to that point and we're saying oh you know i'm trying to fix myself so i can like enjoy things again no, fuck off. Destroy society. You know, ask payment. <laughs> we should totally read Black Skin, White Mask breakout group. That will be really good. Does anyone have an idea about that final reference, though? Will Aaron leave with his flute, which is not a phallus, but a desiring machine and a process of deter... Who is Aaron? What are we talking about? There's no footnote. There's no reference. I hate this sometimes so very much. I feel like Ken or Joe is gonna, is, has to have a line on this. It's got to be a Freud line. Is it Moses oh, okay. Aaron? D.H. Lawrence, Aaron's Rod. Oh, yep, they're talking about Lawrence. It probably is right. Okay. And so that's Moses' Aaron. I mean, uh, I, 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 I don't think anyone is, uh, is really up to um, uh, or, or able to, to make this Freudian, you know, or, or would like to take that on. Uh, it's a pretty harsh... Um, critique uh, i i wouldn't uh, want to touch this uh, myself well I, I i will quickly say just as a quick synopsis of aaron's rod by dh lawrence who they reference throughout this section actually uh the synopsis of the book is aaron a union official in the coal mines of england is trapped in a stale marriage is also an amateur but talented flautist at the start of the story he walks out on his wife and two children and decides on impulse to head to italy his dream is to become recognized as a professional musician. During his travels, he encounters and befriends Rod and Lily, a Lawrence-like writer who nurses Aaron back to health when he is taken ill in post-war London. Having recovered his health, Aaron arrives in Florence, where he moves in intellectual and artistic circles, argues about politics, leadership, and submission, has an affair with an aristocratic lady. The novel ends with an anarchist or fascist explosion that destroys Aaron's instrument, his, his flute ultimately being killed, destroyed. Uh... The reference here is obviously um, that it's not necessarily that the rod at any point is directly a phallus. As they say, it is not. He's leaving with his flute, but instead the flute is actually a desiring machine and a process of deterritorialization. It's something much yeah, grander than just a phallus. Yeah, that's what I was about to say. But what happens at the end, you know, it's being destroyed. So does he continue on his line of flight or, you know, everything is, you know, shutting down because his, his vehicle is being destroyed? I guess we'll never know. <laughs> I guess, I guess, I guess we will never know. But it's, uh, again, them saying that uh, the, the idea of everything we do, and that includes being in the psychoanalyst's office, uh, all that we do is always um, something that is a desiring machine and something connected to the larger social field rather than just something sort of happening in a vacuum uh, within the familial. 
Uh, with that, I want to move to the next paragraph, if everyone's all right with that. <clears throat> let us suppose that we are granted everything. It will only be granted... Oh, one sec, let me close my door. One moment. All right. Uh, let us suppose we are granted everything. It will only be granted afterward. It is only afterward that the libido would invest the social field and that would participate in the social and metaphysical, which prevents the preservation of the fundamental Freudian position, according to which the libido must be desexualized in order to perform such investments, which permits, what did I say? Something, something sublimation-like? Yes, I'm not sure what I said. Um, which permits the preservation of the fundamental Freudian position, according to which the libido must be desexualized in order to perform such investments, but begins with Oedipus, me, father and mother, the pre-Oedipal stages relating structurally or eschatologically to the Oedipal organization. We have seen that this conception of the upward implied a radical misunderstanding with regard to the nature of the actual factors. For either the libido is caught up in molecular desiring production and knows nothing of persons, just as it knows nothing of ego, even the most undifferentiated ego of narcissism, since its investments are already differentiated, but differentiated according to the pre-personal regime of partial objects, singularities, intensities, gears, and parts of machines of desire, where one would have a hard time recognizing mother or father or me. We have seen how contradictory it was to invoke the partial objects and to make of them representatives of parental persons or the supports of familial relations. Or, on the other hand, the libido invests persons and an ego, but is already caught up in social production and social machines that do not merely differentiate them as familial beings, but as derivatives of the molar aggregate to which they belong under this other regime. Yeah, it's... Um... A bit eerie, um, but interesting, you know, uh, to, to, to uh, again, um, um, come back to narcissism uh, um, and put it on the spot uh, with the schizophrenic. Um, I think that they're, not no, they're no longer talking about unconscious as much as conscious and um, where that intersectional because the unconscious uh, of course, uh, becomes the idea, becomes the uh, pre-conscious, becomes the um, conscience. And um, I assume that um, an, uh, a, 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 a schizo, uh, in, in this sense, um, would be everybody, you know. So they have decentralized um, the schizophrenic, which is, I think is very fair, you know. Um, I, I, I agree with that, but m maybe I am a bit um, uh, unclear, you know, uh, as why I, I, I got that association because that may be too personal. I don't know. Anyway, I think that um, the, the 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 conscious well, which they, they are critiquing, is um, the, the 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 they're making the link between the, the conscience of because they they're talking about narcissism and narcissism is mostly about um, uh, your conscience as in right and wrong uh, correcting you, uh, which is uh, resulting in paranoia schizophrenia uh, according to Freud, and um, that's what narcissism uh, was about 
um, according to Freud. So they take narcissism and that fact and uh, call it, um, uh, what, what was it again? Yeah, they, they um, get to it a bit um, like, um, um, so, yeah. I, I lost my train of thought a bit. Can it's, somebody please help me? <laughs> uh, no, it's 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 fine. I'm I'm. It, it's a really we're we're in a really weedy, in the weeds uh, section as we start discussing pre-post subject unconscious pre-conscious pre-individual post-individual social field desiring machines. Like this is this is literally we're in that place where it's starting to discuss where all of these things intersect and how our creation exists inside of it and how we relate to everything else. If, if we could easily uh, rephrase this, we would have a book uh, that would be better received than anti-Oedipus. So it should not be like, we're, we're not like, that's the reality of the situation. This is not an easy subject to discuss to say the least. Um, I, I, I want to start on something I'm stuck with, which is that first sentence, <laughs> the first sentence that says, let us suppose we are granted everything. It will only be granted afterward. Um, uh, okay. What, let's suppose we're granted everything. What the fuck are they talking about? What does that mean? We are granted everything. Okay. Let us suppose that we are granted everything. It's let's just suppose that, you know, Freudian things are right. So basically everything is in us. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's just like to start from this position and they're trying to understand like how it's going to function. Okay, so they're saying, uh, let's we'll we'll give let's assume let's give you that Freud gets you get everything Freudian at once. Is that what they're saying here? They're like, if if this happens, you're still it's still it's only granted afterwards. It's only after that this existence that the libido would invest in the social field. It's only after subject, and the after is the other part that I'm having trouble with because are they referring to after subjectification? Are they saying after individuation? They're saying after. Uh, oh, sorry. Uh, go ahead. No, no, you go. It's, I'm just saying that they're pointing to a contradiction, even though if we take a Freudian perspective uh, seriously. So, is this paragraph basically sarcastic French assholes? No, I think it's a deep intellectualism. <laughs> Doesn't it seem like it relates to page 348 where they say, uh, let's see if I can find this? Um, we see the most disadvantaged the most members of society invest with passion the system that oppresses them, where they always find an interest, since it is here that they search for and measure it. Interest always comes after. Because um, I, I focused on that quite a bit when I was reading that section. But that seems to me to be quite a similar statement. That's sort of like what we, let me see if I can now find it, wherever the hell we um, Yeah, it's what we are granted everything will be granted afterward. That like, that same thing as what Roger was saying, that thing that we assume is like the default canvas is, you know, it's going back to their overall point, I guess, that it's it's something that is produced, you know, rather than given, I guess is how I'm reading it. Are, are they making a comment then on, like, because it? I, I really hate when they do this sort of sarcastic commentary that I just can't follow. Um, are they saying then that, uh, basically, oh, on the one side, it's either going to be caught up in molecular desiring production 
or it's going to be in social production, which is just familialization. And they're like, it's either or in your shitty system that's broken, one of these two things still is, is the way that it has to work. And neither one makes sense. I think they, uh, they've taken the interest in it, uh, certainly. Definitely. Because, you know, um, I, I, I think it's, it's the, the same polemics. Um, indeed, if, if you put it like, um, yeah, let's say, for instance, class struggle in the sense of interest, uh, which each, each party has, is, they, is, I think, the same as um, the, um, the, the consciousness pro problem, which um, Freud uh, raised but never uh, explained or, um, um, like, g given, uh, did, did right by uh, anyone he, he, um, he, he, he put on that problem. He kind of said uh, to the schizophrenics, well, like, uh, I take the schizophrenics and I put them here at, it's your problem now um, what uh, right and wrong is. And um, I think that's, that's, that's very unfair. And uh, if, you, if you take interest in that uh, conversation, it was not in the interest of uh, the, the schizophrenics. So um, I think that that's maybe a, 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 some sort of a, of a, a, a segue. I, I, I don't have the text, so I, I apologize. No, I, no, I, no I, I, that's, that's great. I, I do want to move forward to the next paragraph because I read a little bit ahead and I'm like, oh, it answers what I'm talking about a little bit. So does anyone have any last comments on this paragraph? Alyosha, I saw yeah, you. That, that I listen intently. Yeah. Just what I, <laughs> no, I will, we'll see what the paragraph says. I was actually just rereading it. It seems to me like they're not saying that the, either of those are bullshit. In fact, they're saying that they're, you know, either the libido is molecular design production, as we've always been saying, or if it's not that, then it's, it's sort of, you're already analyzing it on the layer of it being caught up in molar aggregates. So either one of those, I read it as them saying, whichever angle you cut at it from, it agrees with what we're saying rather than what it's saying. Okay. That makes more sense. Uh, because that then makes sense for their what they put in parentheses. We have seen how contradictory it was to invoke the partial objects and to make of them representatives of parental persons or familial relations. Yeah, okay. That makes more sense. Uh, all right. Uh, to continue. It is indeed true that the social and the metaphysical arrive at the same time, in accordance with two simultaneous meanings of process, as the historical process of social production and as the metaphysical process of desiring production, but they do not come afterward. Lindner's painting again asserts its presence, where the turgid little boy has already plugged a desiring machine into a social machine, short-circuiting the parents, who can only intervene as agents of production and anti-production in one case, and as in the other. There is only the social and the metaphysical. If something crops up afterward, it is certainly not the social and metaphysical investments of the libido, the unconscious syntheses. Rather, on the contrary, it is Oedipus, narcissism, and the entire series of psychoanalytic concepts. The factors of production are always actual, and are so from the tenderest age. Actual does not signify recent as opposed to infantile but rather in action, as opposed to what is virtual and will come about under certain conditions. Oedipus is virtual and reactional. Let us consider the conditions under which Oedipus arrives. An aggregate of departure, 
trans what's the word I'm, my text doesn't have it right transfinite transfinite that's why my text doesn't have it right transfinite constituted by all the ob objects agents and relations of socio desiring production is reduced to a finite familial aggregate as an aggregate of arrival a minimum of three terms, which one can and even must augment, but not to infinity. Such an application, in fact, presupposes a fourth, extrapolated mobile term, the symbolic abstract phallus, charged with performing the folding or the correspondence. But this application effectively operates on the three persons who constitute the minimum familial constellation, or on their substitutes, father, mother, child. One does not stop there since these three terms tend to be reduced to two, either in the scene of castration, where the father kills the child, or in the scene of the terrible mother, where the mother kills the child or the father. Then from two we pass to one in narcissism, which in no way precedes Oedipus, but is its product. That is why we speak of an Oedipal narcissistic machine, at the end of which the ego encounters its own death, as the zero term of a pure abolition that has haunted Oedipalized desire from the start, and that is identified now, as the end, at the end, as Thanatos. Four, three, two, one, zero. Oedipus is a race for death. I get the first part, but then the second one. Well, anytime we start talking about the death drive, I start having a mental seizure so let's start with the beginning of this the <laughs> mike's done good I, uh, sorry mike is on right uh oh, sorry no no you're good uh <laughs> that was at <laughs> least sorry, sorry. It, it, at least it was authentic um the uh the the opening of this is again i think uh Alyosha, what you said before we started i think this continues off of that same thought saying, hey, these things happen at the same time, but hey, they happen at the pre-individual. They happen at that very early part because, as they say, uh, the little boy plugs his desiring machines into social machines. Uh, and the parents are there as agents of production and anti-production in one case and in the other, that obviously libidinal sort of desires happen at that, that lower layer, that pre-individual space. That's, I think, what they're re re reassessing there. Is that close? Can I do a, a crude schizo analysis of the TV show I'm watching right now? Uh, it like, depends. It, what TV show is it? And then I'll say yes or no. The Americans? Yes, you can. I like that show a lot. <laughs> yeah, because we've both talked about it. No, I don't have much to say. I was just thinking about um, in the show, there's two Soviet spies who are married and they have children and they're like deep cover in the United States in the 80s Cold War. And the whole point is that they build identities and, you know, it's all the fun adventures of them trying to hide their identities, spy for the Soviet Union and hide it from their kids and all that stuff. I, I'm in a point in the show where the daughter is starting to develop an interest in Christianity and it's really upsetting the parents, but she's like going, going down this like Quaker kind of like religious path. And just reading this, it brings back into mind, like the idea of that boy, like he's already plugged into social machines. There, there is a way in which uh, a, a normal kind of psychoanalytic approach because the, the household is there's neglect and there's all these things like you could approach it and try and look for the meaning in what the daughter is doing and say, well, why is she reacting to these things? Or she's reacting to the parent's absence by trying to reassert a father figure in Jesus and all these other things. But what 
all of that neglects there's there's basically no discussion of like american culture there or nationalism or other social formations that intersect with the family like it wasn't you know and in the show example that i'm using it's not that the daughter you know whether it was christianity or was something else like there's a white herd desiring machines they are looking for contact with something and they find uh, they hit something like battleship and it succeeds and they keep moving in that direction so it's not it's not simply that oh it had to be it was always preordained that she would become x because then that you know the family repressed her in this way there's a there's a way in which those you know you, you grow up in america you cannot not be exposed to that kind of religious cultural project of evangelization and to pretend that that the parents are the representatives of that rather than like what Roger said is like parents are the mediators they they can filter things through them and they, they as a family in the show they do try to do that they try and teach their kids like secular values so called but they don't discuss it there's no prohibition against religion so it just i i'm just thinking of it because i've been unhealthily binging it recently but the idea of being plugged into social machines beyond the family that I think is valuable in that respect. Is that, uh, is that just for uh, a non-American, is that uh, a common thing to, um, to do, to uh, leave it up to the kids? Uh, it depends. I mean, that's certainly how I was raised, but I don't know if that's very common. I mean, I, I would very- say in, in America, what you tend to find is with secular families, it absolutely is left up to the kids. In religious families, it is not. So you have, so this, you have- this sort of natural, uh, if parents already believe a thing, they tend to enforce it pretty strictly on the kids, despite pretending like they don't have a prohibition. It's uh, like Zizek tells the Stalinist old joke, of uh, the Stalin's in front of a group and says that everyone's free, and the man, a man yells, "That's ridiculous! We can be charged for anything." And the man next to him says, uh, "You can't say such things in front of Stalin." The the second guy gets the second guy is the one who gets his uh, uh, the second guy is the one who gets punished harsher. So like, there's an understanding in oh yes, no, you don't have to grow up to be Protestant, but. I highly suggest you do is kind of the understanding there with my parents who were very secular, despite being somewhat religious. uh, I think it's more the norm in America to have that belief that you have uh, all of that open. Um, And I think it's interesting uh, the, because you're bringing up Zizek with with jokes, but the more serious part of Zizek um, to say that, for example, secular uh, secular society is just a post-Christian or a post-Catholic society, because it functions only as uh, the possibility of you know separating the private belief from the public um, existence of people. So basically, it just it's 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 a religion that allowed to kill God and replace it by men, but at the same time, the humanistic principles are the same as the religion. So basically, in a secular uh, family, you know, they will naturalize uh, those beliefs, but also they will naturalize uh, the beliefs and the functioning of the capitalist society. So basically, they will say, "Oh, you know, let your desire guide you. Let uh, you know you can you can desire what you want. You know, like uh, consumerism is okay, or you know, ethical principles are okay. You and we're presenting you with an array of choice, and you choose through that. But this choice, this rational choice of the children." is actually something that is going through the whole society and is being disciplined in the child in a form of a pseudo-freedom. 
Well, and it's, I think, easiest to spot in uh, cultures that you aren't raised in. For example, for me, it was very hard to see uh, sort of the the Christian uh, underpinnings of my secular upbringing versus uh, you know, when I have, I have friends in Dubai and I, I got to live there for a while and they say things like, oh, no, I'm I'm it's a secular city. Don't worry. And it's like you're like, no, it, like you're kidding. Like it, it suddenly becomes obvious when it's sort of this this otherness to it. And you can see that the shape of things that they were told as children is very much in the shape of sort of those expectations, the the social machines that exist outside of the child. It's very, it becomes more clear when it's not necessarily your own to say the least. Um, I, I do have a question for the end of this. Does anyone have a line on Thanatos. That is why we speak of an Oedipal narcissistic machine at the end of which the ego encounters its own death as the zero term of pure abolition that has haunted Oedipalized desire from the start. I don't follow that at all. I, I get that for a while and then they start talking about mother killing child and this death drive and every time the death drive is brought up I do not grasp it fully especially how they mean it which is more of an anti-production setup. Yeah, the death drive doesn't have uh, a dialectic uh, representation, so it's uh, extra difficult uh, for uh, Marxist discourse to um, add that uh, to, to, uh, to it. So you, you have to stick to the Freudian interpretation, um, which is uh, further developed by uh, postmodernism and uh, Baudrillard, of course, with um, symbolic exchange and that, which is a very interesting read and uh, makes clear that that is um, like a, you can treat it, you can isolate it, but you, but you uh, can describe it in a sense. So um, you can take it very far and uh, make it clear, but um, I, 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 I'm not sure if, if I don't remember if they um, go the same direction, um, um, if they stick to the, the so. Um, I don't know. I, I, I mean, um, the dead drive is basically um, repetitive, and um, maybe the 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 less drive that we keep, uh, so in a way, if you um, put it uh, next to the um, uh, the the, uh, the the genital uh, drives, then the dead drive is older and um, more consistent. So. Um, it's um yeah maybe that that, that explains it a, a little bit uh, yeah no and i think um uh, let's make a note and spend some time when we finally get to the review of this uh herculean long chapter and section um let's let's spend some time and maybe uh do an entire uh hour or two on the death drive on thanatos on anti-production because it's definitely a thing i've been looking for a lot of sources on uh and I have found very few who actually dive in directly on that. So, and can, uh, I, can we say just one thing? You know, because before before we're going anywhere, uh, they're talking about three terms. You know, in the nuclear family, so there's the child, the mother, and the father. And then they say that um, this is there's actual relationships between them, and there's the virtual as a reserve of you know potentials that can be actualized and they're saying that with a fourth term um, the abstract symbolic values 
becomes the possibility of actualization of those potentials into the virtual reserve. So three plus one um, makes it that you can actualize certain things and actualize the the other pole. And I think that you know it's it's the same thing as the the graphical representation that they give earlier in the book. If you go back to three terms, it the virtual is actualized into a different manner. Two terms, it's actualized into another manner, and one term is actualized into another manner. So I think they're declining those um, assemblages from fourth, three, two, and one. I don't know. That's my personal take. I don't know what you think of this, but that's the kind of like you know structural reasoning that they would do. Oh, that's. So the four, three, two, one, uh, as you're reading it, is not just not. just simply them counting down, uh, which is how I read it the first time. But instead, they've just finished going through actually what the fourth pieces are, and then reducing that to three terms, then two. That is the the joke is the countdown. They're being snarky French assholes again. God damn it. So basically, Oedipus in that manner from three, four, three, two, one, zero. But I wonder what the zero is. They'll probably like talk about it later because you know. So the debt was the would be the debt drive be like zero or something, or Oedipus would be zero. Zero would be that, uh, and they talk about it a little bit earlier. That uh, the heat death, the the uh, full body, would be my assumption is what they're referring to. A complete inertia with yeah, zero intensity. Yeah. Zero intensity. Or maybe they're just, again, being just snarky when they're like, we start with four, then three, then two, then one, now zero. Oedipus is a race for death. Uh, I mean, they don't, they're just shitting all over it. So maybe they're just yeah. being snarky. Uh, I mean, in, in their sense, zero doesn't, it's not possible. Uh, yes. Because yes. it would be degree zero but the degree zero has nothing material uh, Which but i think maybe it's their point it's i think that it's mostly like a joke like uh, as a start of the ra of a of a race all right on your count three two one zero and then people go you know so oedipus is a race for that it's like a countdown to announce it gotcha and that's basically them counting down the last five sentences which they do the fourth object, then the three, then the two, then the one, then nothing. She's this one was difficult to go. <laughs> it's a uh, breaking down some of these paragraphs. It's always tough. Um, excellent. Well, with that, I am going to end us because we've gone uh, over our time frame today. Thank all of you for joining today. Uh, as always, you can hit us on Twitter, D and GQC. Hit us on Patreon, DGQC. And uh, join us on Discord pretty much any time. We're going to be...